Predictions are dangerous. We absolutely need more inventory. The Fed doesn't actually have a lot of tools to regulate inflation. That cash has dried up. Wow, is my first thought, Bruce. If both parties don't win, it doesn't happen. The Real Look. Trending News. G'day. Today's Wednesday, March 15th. I'm Bruce Hardy. And I'm Chase Williams. This is the news you need to know. Well, Chase, this is not really a surprise to me, but we're starting to see announcements across the industry of brokerages increasing their fees to agents. In fact, At Properties, which is based out of Chicago, announced that they were introduced a new fee on agent commissions. Basically, what they're doing is they're going to be adding a 1% agent services fee on gross commissions for company-owned At Properties offices. Now, At Properties has both company-owned and franchise units. They merged with Christie's. They're adding a 1% service fee. What are your thoughts around that? Well, it makes sense, Bruce, that they would only be doing it in company-owned because they already have pre-existing franchise agreements, right? That can't just be modified on a whim. It's interesting timing. It makes sense from their perspective. The interesting part is the market's turned pretty tough on the real estate agent side of the business. So it's an interesting time to be raising fees unless you can tie it to a very specific increase in value simultaneously. And that's just my opinion, right? Here you have an extremely competitive real estate market, both on the consumer and agent side and the broker and agent side. And you have a company that is trying to increase their revenue by adding a fee versus adding more agents or helping those agents be more productive or offering ancillary products and services. Those are the three kind of primary ways of generating revenue, usually in a brokerage. Raising the fees is also a way. It's just a risky way, depending on how you can tie it to value and the competitive nature of the current industry. What are your thoughts? Well, I thought it was interesting, right? The company leaders cited low brokerage revenues and high expenses as the reasons behind the move. You and I both know, right, there's only two ways to make a profit is cut expenses and increase revenue. Well, certainly we've seen the industry revenues drop dramatically. I mean, it was like falling off a cliff. And so they're obviously feeling that. And yet the other side of it is, and and you and I have talked at length about these publicly traded companies that are all fighting to cut expenses, right? Compass is looking to cut $370 million out of their expenses. Not only them, but everybody's doing it. It's why you're seeing layoffs. Everyone's trying to remargin their businesses. The challenge is there's always been a tug of war over the commission dollar, right? The agents feel like they're paying the company too much and not getting enough in return. The companies feel like they're giving the agents too much and not getting enough of their commission dollars. One of the things I think is so significant about what Keller Williams does is the idea of profit sharing puts both the agents and the brokers on the same side of the table. And the reason that they do that is because the agents have a vested interest in the profit that the company generates. So I think this is interesting. They can raise their revenue and instead of helping their agents be more productive, they're saying, we're just going to charge our agents more money. And are they willing to cut the expenses on the other side of the balance sheet? Yeah, I think the remargining conversation, Bruce, is an incredibly legitimate one in today's industry. But there's different ways to remargin. One would be raising your fees, and that's what they're doing here in this instance. Another would be offering products or new types of value that the real estate agent is willing to pay more for, right? And that's kind of the conversation we've been having internally. 
if what we're charging is competitive on the brokerage side, but there's other things we're not currently offering that agents are wanting and willing to pay for, i.e. high quality leads would be an example, right? That's another way of remargining your entire business without needing to raise the fee on something that you're currently providing. So I do think that remargining is going to be crucial to the profitability and longevity of the brokerage business, but there's more than one way to quote unquote skin that cat. It'll be interesting to watch how many follow suit, right, in raising fees. In fact, Berkshire Hathaway announced that they were also raising their transaction fees for their franchisees. We'll keep an eye on that. Inflation in February was up 6% over February of last year. Now, that's an improvement of 0.4% from January. However, it's still stubbornly high. You know, the Fed, their goal is to get inflation back down to around 2%. And that's a challenge. Now, what I think is really interesting and significant about that, two weeks ago, if you were to go to Wall Street and ask people to place bets on what they thought the Fed was going to do, the general consensus was that based on the numbers that had been coming out on the economy, that the Fed would probably raise the interest rate yet again and go back to a 50 basis point raise. Well, that all changed, right? Last Thursday, Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank collapsed. By the way, the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank actually caused interest rates to drop, and that included mortgage rates. So do you have any thoughts around this? Well, first of all, Bruce, for anyone listening that hadn't previously heard of Silicon Valley Bank, let's put that in perspective. They were one of the top 20 commercial banks in the world. (laughs) So I have never heard of them because I don't bank there, to be frank. But that doesn't mean that they weren't huge. So the fact that they collapsed was absolutely big news. No doubt it will have an impact on how the Fed is thinking and potentially the action that they're going to be taking around inflation. Oftentimes when something like that hits the marketplace, hits the news waves, right, it can lead to some fear and therefore some action, right? People say, oh my gosh, my money's not safe. It's not safe in the bank. So I need to find something that it's safe in, right? And a lot of that money tends to move into, or some of it, it tends to move into hard assets, right? Whether it's gold or real estate or a safer investment that someone perceives as safer, right? So I know that there's been talk of there being a run on other banks. Now, we haven't heard news of any others collapsing yet, and we're not reporting this as if that's going to happen. So the federal government is going to work really hard to calm everybody down as best they can. And one way that they might be able to do that is to slow the raising of money or the interest rate, right? And so it'll be interesting to see if that has enough impact on their decision making around the next decision point. I think you're absolutely right. I mean, the federal government and the Fed are going to do everything they can to stop a run on banks because once that gets going, it's like wildfire. Right. And we know in the Northwest what wildfire can do. It can destroy a lot. One of the things about banks is the FDIC, right? The Federal Deposit Insurance Corp, I think, is what it stands for. We'll have to look at that. Guarantees depositors up to $250,000 per account. And yet what they've decided to do is actually make everyone whole. The reason that this is fascinating to me, Chase, is because a lot of venture capital money was deposited in Silicon Valley Bank. So all of these tech startups, and there's a lot of them, by the way, who are in the real estate sector, 
deposited all the money they received from these venture capitalists. And by the way, to the tune of $179 billion. I mean, not a small chunk of change. What Silicon Valley Bank had done was they had invested the bulk of that in bonds and in mortgage-backed securities. And of course, the raising interest rates have actually impacted the price and the value of those assets that they purchased, and now they have a liquidity issue. Last week, they announced that they were looking to raise $2 billion to improve their liquidity. They failed in doing that. And then, of course, once word hit the street, bang, there was a run on them. It's an interesting story, and we're going to continue to watch what's going on with the banks because that impacts all of us. The fascinating thing to me, though, is that you look at inflation, the biggest driver of inflation right now is housing. Not only what consumers are paying for housing, but what consumers are paying in rent. And those were the biggest driver, and they're the things that are maintaining the stubbornness. So I think the Fed's got its hands full, how they're trying to balance. And remember, their goal is what they call a soft landing. So we're yet to see where that will go. (laughs) That's always their goal, Bruce, but that's not always the outcome. This is an interesting story, and that is the Hispanic home ownership rate rose to 48.6% in 2022. And that's despite affordability challenges. This is the eighth consecutive year of growth. So what do you think about that? Oh, I think it's fantastic, Bruce. I think anytime there's growth in homeownership in any community, right? Frankly, in my opinion, is great because we know what owning a home can lead to in terms of building wealth and a whole bunch of other great things that homeownership offers. So it's great to see, despite some of the market challenges that we've experienced over the last year, the challenge around affordability. That has not gone away. So the fact that the homeownership in the Hispanic community continues to go up despite that is kind of a little bit of a sigh of relief for me and certainly for those that are able to achieve that kind of dream, right? So I think it's always good, Bruce, and I'd love to see the real estate community, the agent community rather, take note of some of these communities that have opportunity. What bigger responsibility and opportunity to do what we do professionally, but for a group of people that could really use the support in getting there, right? And certainly changing potentially the dynamic of their family tree long-term. So I think there's an opportunity for us as an industry to recognize, oh my gosh, like there's some underserved communities out here that we can really help. Agreed. Latinos added a net total of 349,000 homeowner households last year, which was one of the largest single year gains over the last decade. I think what's really interesting to me is that Latinos tend younger as homeowners than white Americans. About 70.6% of Latinos who purchased a home with a mortgage in 2021 were under the age of 45. And that's compared to 63.9% of the general population. And that's according to data from the Home Mortgage Disclosure Act. In fact, about 33% of Latinos age 45 and under have the credit characteristics to qualify for a mortgage. Among those who don't already have a mortgage, the share of mortgage-ready Latinos increases 39%, according to Freddie Mac. So like you said, it's a great opportunity, one, for that group, and two, as realtors, the question I would ask is, how do we better serve that group? Bruce, you offered a great example. One small example earlier before we recorded was Gary Keller wrote a first-time homebuyer book, Gary Keller and Jay Papazan, right? And they just now announced and released the Spanish version 
So that's a small example, right? On maybe a large scale with a large audience of saying, hey, gosh, how can we get this information that exists and we created to help people buy their first house and put it into a format, Spanish, that is applicable to a huge opportunity in the market? So we can help those people too, right? It's the same idea of serving. It's just done in a slightly different way. So when we think about that from the agent perspective, how can we offer first-time homebuyer classes in Spanish, right? How can we identify those uh, agents in our brokerage that speak Spanish? And I'm just using Spanish as the example here. It could be anything, right? So that we're just able to connect and serve really in the same way we do in just a slightly different manner. I think there is a lot of opportunity around that. We're always looking for the market of the moment. And when you find that market of the moment, you need to match your marketing message to that group. And the fact that we've got young Hispanic people who can afford to buy homes, that's something we should absolutely focus on. So go get that book, by the way, and share it with people. That's the news you need to know. Now, don't miss this Friday's Northern Lights episode where we'll interview Nicole Brown with Keller Williams Greater 360 in Poolsbow, Washington. Thanks again for tuning in with us on The Real Look. This podcast is produced by Marissa Frost. Visit kwnwr.com to access the show notes from today's episode. Head over to Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts to subscribe to The Real Look. And don't forget to leave us a review. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back next week with a breakdown of all things real estate.